0: Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline won't be joining us today, but check in next week or maybe the week after. Our guest today is Anna Homayun, and she is a return guest. She's joining us today for her new book, Erasing the Finish Line, the New Blueprint for Success Beyond Grades and College Admissions. And Anna is an academic advisor and early career development expert working at the intersection of executive functioning skills, technology, and personal energy management, which sounds like a pretty busy intersection. She's the founder of San Francisco Bay Area-based Green Ivy Educational Consulting and the author of three previous books, including the one that we spoke with her before on, which was Social Media Wellness, and she lives in San Francisco. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Anna.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. So
0: tell us how this book is different from your previous books and what inspired you to write it.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I've been doing this work now for over 20 years, and I have really seen how this faulty finish line around college admissions has utterly changed the classroom and the school dynamic. And it's also affected our students and our families in many different ways. And what parents of every middle school and high school student need to know is that college admissions and college acceptance isn't the finish line. So I really have seen how these daily habits and routines and fundamental skills are so key for our world that we live in today, where so many of the jobs that my students that I went back and interviewed who are now in their early thirties, the ones that are really enjoying a lot of their work, those jobs didn't exist when they were in middle school and high school. So my goal is really to, help, to create a book that really supports families in understanding, A, that we really need to move beyond this faulty finish line of college admissions, and B, what are some practical implementable skills that support the social and emotional well-being of students and also help them really pursue um, their own interests in a way that's meaningful and um, fulfilling? Well, as I was reading through the book, I felt like you actually were trying
0: to accomplish quite a few different things with this book that are all related, but all slightly different. And one of them is the idea, like you said, that getting into college isn't the finish line. that you have to be able that students have to be able to, um, you know sometimes students who are who are even very successful up through high school, because they have strong support systems, don't right. have the skills that they need when they go away and don't have those support systems. A, B, going away to college. Isn't the best thing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And C getting into one of the top tier schools is not the only path to success, but at the same time, Absolutely. you're trying to help kids who are trying to get into those best schools have a better chance of doing so.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great (laughs) thank you. That's such a wonderful way of, um, of summarizing. And the real thing is that all kids should have the opportunity to develop their own blueprint for success. And we should be helping provide those skills and the time structure and support that they need to develop those. But to your point, there are multiple different pathways there are multiple different ways of thriving and existing and going to college, if that's a choice that people want to do and also doing really well. Like many of the students in this you know, story there in the book, you know, are my former students that their pathways have, have been different, so different. And yet they've all found work that's meaningful to them. That's mission driven. And they really feel like they are, using these fundamental skills that I highlight throughout the book. And
0: in some ways, these skills are more important than subject matter they might learn in their earlier education. And yet
1: it's not yeah. often not taught anywhere. Exactly. So in the book, there are four pillars. And the first is around systems, um, which is really around this idea of executive functioning skills, which are those skills that are not automatic. Um, And, you know, I talk about the academic level of those like organizing, planning, prioritizing, starting and completing tasks and adaptable thinking. And what most people don't realize is a we don't teach these skills in school in any uniform manner. And I, My own work, I've been bringing this work into schools for um, the past decade or so, but that also feeling organized decreases our stress. So when you feel organized, that actually helps build your own sense of confidence, your own sense of competence. We as adults know this, and yet we don't have any system to support students in building these skills. And that's actually what my work has been for the last 20 years in my office is, helping students develop their own systems. And when I went back to visit my students who are now in their early 30s, many of them said, these are the, you know, routines and the habits and the skills we learned in your office that we use every day in our work. And it really helps. And so to me that was really rewarding, but also really poignant in that these are things we tend to overlook when we're, and we're just like sort of barreling through these grades, test scores and college admissions without backing up and saying, oh, wait, if we focus on the habits, the grades will come. And we'll also be giving the kids the skills to learn how to learn and feel confident that no matter what they're setting, that they, they can figure it out. And that's so important
0: because real life isn't necessarily like school. So even if you have a way that helps you succeed or get good grades or good test scores, that doesn't always carry over
1: without Absolutely. without and those
0: systems and those other skills, what what we might consider
1: soft skills. Right, right. And I, I call them like power skills. And the reason mm-hmm. is, is that they really empower students to have a system in place that supports them no matter how they adapt. And your point is really important that um, we overlook these, but actually they're, in my mind, they're very foundational. And um, in a world where things are changing, in a world where jobs that exist today didn't exist 15 years ago, one of the things we want to focus on is how do we support kids in being adaptable um, mm. and being able to find multiple ways to thrive because things are changing.
0: Well, Anna, how did you develop these skills yourself?
1: I love that question. I feel like you're the first person to ask me that question. <laughs> um, so – you know, this is really interesting. This book was also very personal for me. Um, it was much of a journey um, on two fronts. One, I was trying to bring this work into schools, and that was developing a whole new experience and curriculum and system and piloting it. But also, it required me to go back into my childhood, and so all these funny and weird things happened while I was writing the book. And one of them was. My dad was cleaning out his, like, he just recently retired, so he was cleaning out all of his, like, cabinets and his things, so he he was one of those parents that keeps everything, so he brings over this big bag worth of, like, literally all of my academic reports and my testing from when I was, like, in elementary school and my report cards, and so I get this fifth-grade report card, and it's, like, Anna is really, you know, all these good things, and then just, but she struggles with being organized, (laughs) And I laughed because I was like, I don't remember this at all. Like, I don't remember this conversation. I don't remember this being an issue. Um, But I had to create a lot of systems for myself. And I was very good at masking the challenges I felt as a child with distractions. Like, my mind is one of those minds that, you know, if you give me an idea and you leave me alone for 10 minutes, I'm on 17 different ideas that started with that idea as a kernel. But then I start talking about the 17th idea. So you're like, where was her brain? Um, And I always (laughs) knew that about myself, right? And, you know, people can either think that's profound or just really not. Um, But I had to create these systems for myself. And when I was working, you know, in high school, I started helping out classmates who had similar challenges. And I really saw that if they could develop a system or had the time structure and support around this, They developed confidence, but also a lot of their issues in terms of academics were lessened, right? You know, kids that were failing chemistry would, you know, raise their grade 40% just by figuring out, okay, turning in in the work, completing the work, coming up with a system to study for tests. And so then when I started working with students, um, again, some of it is like my expertise in this world for the last 20 years also comes from my own experience. So, I can relate to kids who struggle with this because I did Now I don't anymore. um, But I have systems in place that I've practiced and and that work for me. But yeah, I was apparently a disorganized fifth grader. And I was very, (laughs) you know, enthused to find that out because I totally forgot.
0: You know, it's interesting because there's so many uh, apps and technology software programs that are, Organizational in nature. Mm-hmm. And yet, mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, reading your book and also from my own experience, that there's nothing that beats paper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that because, you know, my office is in the Silicon Valley and people often really call my office and they say, you know, my kid is really struggling with the organization. They insist on, my kid also insists on doing everything online. So if you give them paper, they're not going to do it and we're not going to work with you. And I, and I always say, you know, how well is the system working for your child, right? So start with that. And if it's working, then you're not, I mean, you're, you're calling my office because it's not working once. But also, I'm all about meeting every child where they're at. And I also see, you know, I've I, I brought this work into schools. And even because like, that's initially resistant about the paper, The idea of in a 10-tab world where we all have these tabs open on our computer, to be able to monotask is very difficult, even if you want to, right, especially if your brain is developing. So being able to give kids this opportunity, this time structure and support to really, okay, think through what their to-do list is and they start to plan and prioritize and it reduces their stress, writing things down, the research shows, helps with comprehension helps with processing and there's you know so we use a lot of written planners in our book in our our work but also I've also been of the mindset of whatever works for the child works best Um, and I've found that a lot of students do resonate with the written planner
0: you also refer a lot to binders and um, you know papers and binders and pockets do students still use binders I mean I remember going to when you go to get your school supplies in the fall you know getting a new binder was such a cool thing Mm -hmm. when I was a kid and when my kids were little it was trapper keepers I don't know if you remember those I do remember those yeah (laughs) are those do
1: kids still use those well so it's really interesting so I have spent the last six years piloting and bringing my work into schools and you know a lot of the schools are have a lot of technology and kids are using a computer or an iPad and but yet yet and they have digital folders so a lot of the stuff that we talk about we actually have also adapted for a, a school that has you know digital folders and computers and all those things but um, what we found is that you know a lot of students will say well I don't get a lot of papers but then you see the papers still crumpled at the bottom of their backpack. so they might not like my first book, I talked about a binder for each class. And and now my students really have like one binder and then separated dividers for each class because every class, even if it it doesn't, if it's all quote unquote online, there's still this like errant paper or something that's like kind of important that you might want to print out, even if the teacher doesn't require you to. So my goal is that they have a binder that really acts as a catch all but also supports them in feeling organized. And it's amazing. The school that I'm working with in San Francisco right now, we're on year two and every kid got a uniform binder and all of the supplies right away. And how they feel about their own organization is unbelievable because it's given them this place to start where everyone is in the same place. And so instead of everybody having different kinds of supplies, they all start from this uniform place, which has really transformed and made being organized cool and fun, which is what I want, <laughs> right? I want that to be not a heavy. It's like, yeah, actually, this is awesome. It makes my life easier. I have more free time. And it's been great. I'm just, it, it's really so rewarding for me.
0: So a lot of times, it seems like students that you worked with, you know, had the They had the capability to get the material, but there were all these other things getting in the way. How do you identify, or do you even need to identify what was getting in the way for them, or is it just helping them figure out how to get organized, did it by itself?
1: Well, that's one part of it, right? So one of the things that was interesting to me early in my career is noticing that students that... Um, had diagnosed learning differences from an early age. So we're working with a learning specialist. we learning a lot of these skills early because they got the time structure and support. And when students would come into my office that were really struggling, a lot of times intellectually they were very capable, but they had never learned these skills because they had relied on their memory or their charm or their charisma. And then somewhere along the line, that doesn't work anymore. And, That can be challenging if you haven't had that time structure and support in place. So what I found is, you know, I look at this in a way when I go to schools, right? When I I say to, you know, staff members, I say to faculty and staff, when I do professional development, I say, you know, 20% of these students may never need your support or 10% or 20% may never need your support. They have a system. It works for them. They're great. And then 10 to 20% of your students, may need more support, right? They may have diagnosed learning differences or additional concerns that may require more. But if we provide that middle 60 to 80% of kids that, you know, are doing fine, but nobody's noticing, we provide everybody this level of support around building systems, which is the first pillar of the book, we really can transform a school culture. And that's what we're seeing now that I've, you know, I have a nonprofit initiative. It's called the Life Navigator school advisory program. We bring it into schools um, and we're teaching these skills. And, and, you know, a lot of teachers haven't learned this, right? So this is new. Um, And the, the idea is if you can help students build these skills, you also help them build their sense of connection because you reduce the stress and you can expand their perspective and their sense of acceptance, which are the other three pillars of the book. You're listening
0: to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Anna Hamayun, author of *Erasing the Finish Line: The New Blueprint for Success Beyond Grades and College Admission*. So let's move on to the second pillar of connection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in in this section, you do talk about social media, which circles back to some of to your mm-hmm. previous book. Um, mm-hmm. So what's what's new in that area, and what's you know are things changing are you seeing is social media yeah. affecting kids yeah. more or are kids and I'm just saying this because I have you know I have a couple grandkids who are mm-hmm. in middle school you know late elementary middle oh, okay. school age they yeah. don't actually seem to be all that interested in social media and it doesn't seem to be affecting yeah. them much yeah and I don't know yeah. if there are exceptions or is this or are
1: you seeing this more Well, it really depends on your community and where you live and what the norms are within your school and how your kids engage with those norms. So there's so many factors because I see other families who their kids are hiding accounts and um, navigating this. But the piece around connection that's really important for families to recognize is that they need to think about their kids' social connections and their ability to practice face-to-face conversations. You know, the last few years have really changed things for a lot of us. And what I have found in my office and with students is that kids and young adults are out of practice with developing those small talk skills and those face-to-face conversations and those initial conversations that develop relationships. First of all, a lot of, face, you know, there's not a lot of face-to-face introductions that happen anymore or there are fewer than in years past. And that can totally change. And then the other piece is, is that, you know, the goal is that every child has multiple spaces where they feel a sense of connection that are non-overlapping. And what I mean by that is, as kids go through middle school and high school, they, their friendships change, right? They evolve, you know, they, there's transitions that happen, all the research, you know, points to this. And if all of your friends are in one group, one space, like your kids, your friends from school are also at summer camp and are also on the traveling soccer team and also in robotics, so you know, all the same people in the same different spaces, you know, something doesn't happen, you know, or something goes unfavorably in one situation, you feel much more overwhelmed than if you have, okay, multiple different spaces that are non-overlapping and you say, okay, well things aren't working out in robotics. But I have you know my travel soccer team, or I have my friends from biology class, or I have my summer camp or my cousins. Um, and so preventatively, this is really a goal around around um, connection. And the other piece to think about is these small talk skills. How do kids have these, you know develop these stronger and weaker ties through the way they connect? Um, and so an example I give in the book is you know having. Kids practice in low stakes situations, whether that's like, you know, getting a summer job where they're dealing with the public or um, going to a family event and having to talk to adults and start conversations with people they don't normally talk to. these are really practical, implementable things that families can do to support the initial development of connection and building those skills. COVID
0: really changed the game on that, didn't
1: it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I f- really feel for young people who, for whom this was the whole COVID thing, which, by the way, is not over. Um, no, was no. Yeah. Was the defining
1: event of their youth. Sure. And depending on where students were when COVID really, um, you know, had the initial shutdown in 2020, um, we are seeing. Enormous impacts with a tailwind. And, you know, last year I did a newsletter for my audience of um, talking about social challenges. And I got so many emails back from parents being like, I thought my kid was the only one. This has been the number one concern. Um, My child has come home crying multiple days. Because also what we don't realize is that the day-to-day of school and life, provided problem solving and conflict practice right and so if you didn't have that for three very key or two very key developmental years and all of a sudden everything becomes amplified when you try and practice and you're you know you know one or two or three years older but you haven't had that practice over time so you're right it has really done a number and it's something that we need to be intentional about because making and maintaining friends is the key developmental task that when you ask adults, right, what did you remember about middle school? What did you remember about high school? What did you remember about college? Nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you a social experience or a sense of belonging or a sense of not feeling belonging. Very rarely will they say it was the this one topic that I learned in this one class this one year, <laughs> right? Uh, right? And right, feeling, right. Feeling. Yeah. Like the idea of how did this make me feel? And when we feel a sense of belonging within our school community, we feel ready to learn. And that's really key. And I always want
0: to tell kids, every kid, that if you don't, you're not, if you're not, and you do address this whole issue of popularity and so forth, but if mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you don't feel mm-hmm. like you're popular in school it isn't going to matter 10 years from now at all. You know, your popularity in middle school, high school is not going to matter as an adult. The popular kids don't stay popular for the rest of their
1: lives. Well, I always <laughs> say that nobody wants to peak in middle school or high school. That's yes, place exactly. To like, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I, we also want kids to come out of middle school and high school, un, you know, un, permanently traumatized, right? By yes. Experience. And so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Figuring out these multiple spaces of connection is one way to prevent, right? As long as you have the people that you feel a sense of connection and belonging with, you know, the perceived popularity is a totally different animal. And, you know, parents are dealing with them this themselves. You know, I go to schools and I visit and I can see, you know, the parents are like, we, the five of us parents all hang out together and, you'll see the kind of the same social machinations happen and i don't think parents realize it or they don't, you know, heed it that how do we as parents and adults model this idea of expanded perspective, that third pillar of their, you know, being open and curious and modeling acceptance, the fourth pillar, and being really inclusive and being really welcoming. So uh, something I encourage parents to do is their own friendship audit, right? Because one of the most things, the most interesting thing I found in my work was I went back and I interviewed these students, right? And so these kids didn't all have straight A's. They were all different. They had all different strengths, but the ones that are, I would say, you know, people would objectively say, these kids have been really successful. And again, not the ones with the best grades or the test scores or even the most elite colleges, what it was was they were able to connect with others across differences, and they are able to connect with others across differences. And what I mean by that is they don't have the insular, oh, I only hang out with people that look or are my background or are my similar. They were able to say, I'm very open, right? I have friends from all different walks of life, because what that does in a world where our network, the person we know knows someone knows someone knows someone is they build that for themselves. And in previous generations, those were far more insular communities. But I would argue that technology has broken that all open. Mm. And this idea of being able to connect across differences is all the more powerful. And even, you know, again, my office being in the Silicon Valley, I think about this in terms of tech, even and and it's, you know, everywhere, but think about it in terms of tech, right? If you want to be successful, you have to be able to talk well with a software engineer and connect with a recruiter and connect with the front office. And and same thing in communities. You have to be able to have this ability to connect with others across differences. And that's what I really want parents to know, because I think a lot of times parents and adults, caregivers, is that how do we support kids in developing that skill? Um, Because it's important now more than ever.
0: You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Anna Hamayan, who is the author of Erasing the Finish Line The New Blueprint for Success Beyond Grades and College Admission. You talk about having been a floater in your youth, mm-hmm. and that I think has a lot to do with what you're just talking about, but can you define yeah. that a little more?
1: Sure. So the background is that when I was 12 years old, I moved from very rural Connecticut to the Silicon Valley, the heart of the Silicon Valley. So my office is right in the same town and it's right next to, you know, Google and Apple and Meta and it's a weird place. Um, but I love it. And my family is here, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's um, different, but it also gave me this culture shock. And so I move in right before middle school and in this community, at the time, you know, kids had been in the same class with the same kids since kindergarten. Their parents all knew each other. And here my family moved and my parents were immigrants and my po- parents both worked. So I didn't have the parental support around building friendships that I think, you know, we underestimate the key to that mm-hmm. um, in certain communities, right? And and then I also, you know, j- was in these classes and I, was, I remember I tried to befriend these these girls who were very insular, like their friendship had been since kindergarten and they were not, especially one of them was not interested in allowing me to be part of their group. And, um, so I was like, well, that's not going to work out. And I remember having the perspective of like, well, these people are not the be all end all that. I think that if I'd grown up in the community and not seen anything else, I would have felt that, oh gosh. But what I ended up doing was finding friends in all different, like, activities, and, and that just is something I've continued throughout my life, and I was just laughing because last week, one of my friends from middle school, this child now comes to our office, and so, you know, just, like, this full circle of, like, having different connections from different places <laughs> and feeling this longevity in connections, Um is really powerful and meaningful and we underestimate that. So when you're in a smaller community where everyone knows everyone, people often say, oh gosh, you know, that gets, that gets old or whatever, but there is a beauty to that in our world that feels so sometimes disconnected. And my goal is really helping people rethink how do we reestablish connection that's authentic and that's non-transactional. It's important for our kids and it's important for us. I thought it was
0: kind of, um, interesting that you did run across that
1: mean girl many years oh, yeah. later <laughs> yeah and you know what's so funny is I, uh, she apologized and I wrote about it for a piece in 2012 in the Huffington Post and I posted it online and she contacted me she said I read it and I cried oh uh, that wasn't my intent that wasn't my intent <laughs> see this is the thing this is what I want to want to say about that is that she felt regret. And I wrote about that. It's like, she felt regret. I never felt regret. And we wanted to teach our kids to live, you know, to not have that kind of regret by not behaving in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and this idea of the back, I, I wrote that piece around this back to school lesson in kindness. How can we be inclusive? How can we invite the person that's not, doesn't have anyone to sit with? How can we create this environment um, where people feel included. I mean, we could solve a lot of problems that way. And so I talk about this in the book in the relation of how do parents model this as well. When you go to a school event, do you only talk to the same parents? What Do you invite new people in the community to join you? Do you, you know, what are the things that you are modeling? Um, because I do remember one of the things is my parents, you know, you watch your parents and you watch the trusted adults in your lives. And they can't really tell you, but they can show you much more powerfully. And my parents really are really good at connecting with people across differences and feeling a sense of connection that's really non-transactional. And I think that's a superpower that they really instilled that you treat everyone with kindness and that there is, you know, you don't go into a relationship thinking, what can I get from this, right? And and then things flourish in a way you wouldn't have expected. Right. Right. Um, right. Without this, you know, going in and social media creates some of that transaction. Right. A like a follower, a subscribe. That's the transaction. So we want to help ourselves move away from that.
0: I had a, in some ways a similar situation where my parents weren't really part of the local social scene. Um, mm-hmm, didn't mm-hmm. really interact with people a whole lot and yeah. um, and I always felt a little bit outside but they did yeah. especially my mother did model kindness and and inclusiveness and I've had a couple of times over the years people that I barely really noticed in high school they right. were younger or they weren't you know, part of right. my circle at all, come up to me later and said, I'll always remember how kind you were to me.
1: Right. It's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas my sister just <laughs> went to her, my sister just went to her high school reunion and people came up and told her these stories about how she had been kind to them that she blew her away because she's like, I, I don't remember that. Or I barely remember that. And for her, she felt like, again, the same kind of similar a little bit of an outsider, like didn't have the same network, just because you know our family hadn't grown up in the community and and um, and a lot of things. But how rewarding is it to feel like how you made people feel and what they remember you by? And that's what I want all kids to be able to experience, right? And so moving away from this mi- this mindset of um, perceived popularity and into this opportunity to find authentic connections. Across differences and and really being open and curious, right? Everyone has something and um, that we can offer and and learn from and and when you learn that at a younger age, it actually makes you more comfortable because you're not constantly trying to be something or measure, measure up to something. You're just you're just who you are.
0: Absolutely. So.
1: so Anna, why
0: don't you read a little bit from Erasing the Finish Line? Sure, I'd love to.
1: So, I'm going to read the section called How to Use This Book because I think it's a helpful primer. Erasing the Finish Line highlights how certain foundational skills can utterly change life trajectories and promote overall well being in remarkable ways. It shows all of us parents, caregivers, educators, basically anyone and everyone who cares about our future can help our youngest generation navigate this ever-changing world in a way that promotes their social and emotional well-being, as well as economic stability. As part of my research for this book, I interviewed some of the students I worked with many moons ago. They are now young adults in their late 20s and early 30s who have now taken the various skills they learned and followed their own pathways, many different pathways, in many different places towards uniquely fulfilling versions of success. A few were straight A students, most were not. Some came from families who were far better connected and more financially secure than others. In most cases, they pursued their own authentic paths and developed their own blueprints for success using the underlying principles I explain in this book. I also reflected on my own upbringing as someone who has experienced significant economic and social mobility and benefited from exposure to opportunities and proximity to resources that positively affected my life in extraordinary ways. In the coming chapters, I'll share some of their stories as I introduce the foundational skills that empower kids to develop their own pathway to success and well being. I'll discuss redefining success in terms of essential executive functioning skills rather than the grades, awards, achievements, and test scores we've misguidedly deemed to be markers of success. Time and time again, I've seen how focusing on underlying routines and skill building over resume building has helped students develop their own blueprint far beyond any initial goals or expectations. I'll also show how exposure to an expanded worldview, along with shared experiences, helps kids develop a sense of curious engagement and an ability to build community, friendships and relationships filled with stronger ties as well as weaker connections. Throughout this book, I've sprinkled tangible, practical, accessible ways we can all play a vital role in helping young people develop their own blueprints, which translates to a redefined path of a lifelong success. Mm-hmm. It is my hope that kids will return to these foundational skills again and again throughout their life, and that these skills will help them reflect, adapt, and redirect in a world increasingly different from the one their parents grew up in. Erasing the finish line isn't about how we transform a kid. It is a model for how we can transform the world by focusing on the skills young people need to navigate a high-tech, pandemic-adjusted world. It doesn't mean we place, la- it mean we place less emphasis on the humanities or the sciences. It simply means we recognize that other long-ignored modes of developing oneself are at least as important in transforming a life as they are in transforming a society. Our world is ever-changing, often in ways that are socially, economically, and politically unpredictable. What feels like daily uncertainty and a lack of stability is the root of much of the anxiety and the sense of overwhelm that is shared by children and adults alike. Many jobs in demand today didn't exist two decades ago, and therefore might be better suited to different kinds of education or training. And daily life itself seems to be constantly shifting, often as science and technology advance. The most important aspect of my work is how it has helped young people feel about their journey and their role in the world. I regularly see students who once felt defeated and alone bounce out of my office with enthusiasm about learning these foundational skills. They've become more intrinsically motivated and excited about their options and possibilities. I've also seen the energy in audiences at schools around the world when young people have an aha moment, realizing that they too can use these foundational skills to optimize their potential and change their daily lives, and then the future as well. I'm an optimistic realist who has worked with thousands of young people and their families around the world and has seen time and time again the power of listening to kids and supporting them in developing a sense of control over their journey. When we do this, we enable them to thrive well beyond their wildest dreams and in the process erase the faulty finish line that college admissions has become.
0: Thank you, Anna. That was Anna Hamayoun reading from Erasing the Finish Line. It seems like, I mean, you don't get into this a lot, but a little bit that the stress of college applications is much greater than it was 20, 40 years ago. Is oh,
1: 100 percent. That... And why and is a lot that? Of, yeah. Well, there's a couple of different factors. Um One, the ease of applications has made it that kids are applying to way more schools. If you talk to somebody a number of years ago, they would say I applied to five to seven schools. I applied to three schools. I applied to two schools. And now kids are saying I applied to 20 schools, which I think is really way too many because the quality of the application goes down, but also that's a lot of executive functioning, a lot of things to manage. Mm. And then the other piece, is that um, there's just so much information overload around the college application process. You have schools that are marketing to kids at early ages. One of the things that I find so funny is that we we complain a little bit about how kids are not responding to email or young adults are not responding to email in a timely fashion. And I will tell you that if you work with a, with a high school senior, they are getting hundreds and hundreds and thousands of emails from colleges that are like marketing. Whoa! and yeah, so there's just like, you know how do I process all this? Well, I don't, but then I missed that really important email that was unrelated, so mm-hmm. I always tell one of the tips I give is to have kids just just do a email only for colleges but and that that brings me to the marketing piece is that you know there's so much being sent to families and to kids around how this one moment of time is so critical and what I want Erasing the Finish Line to do for families and to restart this conversation is that this is a moment, but there are many moments. And this is a journey, and not everyone is in the same place at 18, nor should they be, or 19. And that there are many different ways to go to college, to lead a life, to learn, to, you know, enter the workforce, and that there are many different pathways to success. Um, And that's really my goal of like expanding this notion of what success looks and feels like.
0: Because obviously not everyone can go to the same few colleges and Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, we all know that there are other ways. I mean, look at Bill Gates dropped out of college. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Does anyone even care what college Steve Jobs went to or Steve Jobs? Mm -hmm. You know, it's. It's what they did after college that mattered. Right. And but sometimes we forget that. And there's this idea that, you know, if you don't build, if you don't go to the right school, you won't have the right network. You won't be able to get the right job. And I can understand that because um, in my other life, I've been involved with um, a number of private equity firms uh, mm-hmm. that all of them seemed to have gone to this, all the partners seemed to have gone to the same college.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we had, it was, you know, I was working with the company. We were selling, we were the sellers and, and uh-huh. the, you know, the potential buyers, there was the Columbia group and there was the Stanford group and there was the oh, um, funny. yeah SMU out of Dallas group, you know, they were, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and almost everyone from the, from the partner down to the, you know, associates were all right. from that same school. So I under—I right. know how that works. I know that it does work mm-hmm. that way. But that's only one path. You know, there's there's so I didn't go to any of those schools, and well, I've probably yeah. been more successful in business than ninety percent of them.
1: Well, and I would also say that that's really important to think about is that even if you go to those schools, if you don't have the connection ability, right, if you only hang out with people, that it's a very insular experience, you're still not going to develop the network that mm-hmm. is and, – and I don't mean network in the way that people talk about networking. I mean really this authentic lattice of experiences, people, and places that you can learn from. And that's where I'd like to expand this notion of what success looks like because, you know, from the perspective angle, again, the kids who like their jobs the most, right now kids, they're now in their early 30s, it really was, you know, more often than not jobs that didn't exist when they were in middle school and high school because things are changing. You know, I had one young man who's not in the book, but I interviewed him and I went back and interviewed him. I'd worked with him from eighth grade through high school. And he is working in data. He wanted always wanted to work in college athletics. He knew that. But the first job he got was in data analytics, which he was the first person at the college in the athletics department to get that job because it, they had created it. Oh, wow. And so being adaptable, yeah. And, and you know, he was a kid that I thought, gosh, he, his parents are well-connected in the world. That's probably how he got the job. He said, No. I sent out 10 resumes a day. I must have sent out 400 because people weren't looking at him coming out of where he went to school for the job. And he went to a highly competitive school, but they weren't, you know, the college athletics world worked differently, but he was really determined. And it was really this confidence in churning through and realizing I just need one. Right. And that was his pathway um, because it allowed him to expand the notion of what success looked like. So he got um, an interview with with a school that he had never even thought of potentially going to work at or even thought of, really. And he said, well, I'm just going to take the interview for practice. So he comes with his own questions, and they were really impressed with him. But he was also really impressed with them. And so he ends up in this first job in athletics, college athletics, at a school he would never have considered and had a great experience and has since been promoted and moved to another school. but this idea of being open and flexible and adaptable to get to an ultimate goal because things are different is really key as we're navigating a world that's changing.
0: and that's I think you go into that more in the in the sections on developing perspective
1: mm-hmm, and also
0: mm-hmm. um, what's the last? The last section, acceptance. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. and I found that story about um, the nonprofit group that helps young kids get into private schools who maybe don't have the financial or the background to do that, but then is disappointed that they aren't more successful in their careers, but refuses to acknowledge the systemic barriers right that those kids right. have i you know i sure hope some of those people
1: read your book and see themselves Think so. well you know it's <laughs> funny i know right it's like yeah. it's very funny because some of the stories in there um like one of the stories in you know, the acceptance section on on uh, the mother daughter the mother's son who went to new you know new york and did this trip and their kids, they had different energy profiles. My friend read the book and she's like, Oh, I'm in the book. <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, when your friends have read the book, right. Cause they're like, Oh, I'm in the book. Um, but you know, for me, that, that story that you reference about this organization that is well-meaning. And I really believe that at the heart, everyone is well-meaning, but they couldn't see that you can provide all these structures and support, but it's, if students don't have access to creating this expanded definition of success and also being connected as sponsors, So one of the things I made in the book that I think a really important point that people don't understand is that there's mentorship and there's sponsorship and a lot of nonprofits really focus on mentorship, which is important. And, um, but if we're really focused on economic mobility sponsorship, which is where you use your social capital to economically benefit someone else. That is really, the, and that means, you know, introducing them to get a job or helping them sign up for a program or letting them know about a program that might benefit them or, you know, all of these things we underestimate, you know, one of the stories I didn't tell in the book is a young woman I worked with and she was in the foster care system and, and um, for a while and I I mentored her for a good 10 years and, um, she ended up being, um, you know, I took her to her job interview. Mm. Um, and I sat in the, I sat in the parking lot as she, um, uh, you know, as she did the interview and just driving her there reduced her stress. Right. And so you probably wouldn't do that for everyone, but that helped her get that first job Um, Which really changed her life trajectory. Um, Yeah, yeah.
0: So Anna, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to talk a little bit about um, when you sit down to write a book. uh, First of all, what what makes you decide? Okay, I need to write another book because you're obviously you're doing other things. You've got this business. You've got these clients. You've got your have this nonprofit. What makes you decide to write a book?
1: I really felt like this idea of erasing the finish line and like how college admissions has become such a finish line is like one of the key conversations that need to happen right now because we're constantly talking about kids' social and emotional well-being. We're talking about kids that are being super stressed out. And at the same time, they're going online and they're seeing these you know, um, acceptance real videos go viral <laughs> everywhere they turn, right? And I'm like, someone is not making this connection. Mm. And then I also was like, you know, I've now done this work for over 20 years. And I'm like, how do we change this conversation? Because I know these kids who everybody was like, oh, that kid's not going to go to college. Or, okay, that kid's going to really struggle in life. And they're not. They're doing great. But it's because they have these foundational skills. I'm an optimistic realist, as I said in the, the the real the um the piece that I read of the book, and I really believe if we help kids with these skills, they're going to transcend any expectations of them in a way that really supports their social emotional well being as well as their economic stability. Because we also want our kids to have, you know, an ability to live in this world um, and feel comfortable financially whatever that looks like, that's different for different people, what that means. But I think that's the piece that I'll often pe- times people aren't talking about. So you you
0: saw the need for this book in the world. Do you then like carve out, okay, I'm going to go away for two months and write this, or do you, I'm going to write for an hour every day? How do
1: you find the time?
0: <laughs>
1: oh, that's such a great question. Um, this book was not written in any sort of, so I did take five weeks off where I did write for a lot of it, but I mean, this book was a labor of love that, you know, it took me, I did the interviews with all my students, former students, and then I went back and interviewed them at least one more time. Um, and then I also processed, I figured out how I wanted to organize the book. And so it would be, um, you know, actually it would be like extended amounts of time on the weekends and then also... Sometimes in the morning, Um, I was doing a lot and I was juggling a lot, but this book was so important to me that I really went into hibernation about thinking about the ideas and how did I want to present them and even the conclusion that story I was working with the young man who's in the conclusion who's an adult who was learning a lot of these skills. During the time I was writing the book, and it came to me very late in the writing process that he should be the conclusion. Mm. So it was really a very active experience um, that I feel really good about, and I'm really proud of the book.
0: Now, the overarching structure of the book, which is essentially based on these four pillars, Mm -hmm. did that come from the system that you're teaching in schools and so forth? So was that already sort of defined before you started writing
1: no so
0: the, oh. the proposal
1: looks very different in fact <laughs> I didn't come up with that structure until I remember a day le- when I took that five weeks off and, and it was like three weeks into it and I was like and it was like this overhaul you know you have the, as that as moment as a writer where you're like okay I thought the book was going to be a lot more about my time in Charlotte which you're talking about the nonprofit. Mm. I thought that was going to be a key part of the book, but 25,000 words ended up on the cutting room floor because like, <laughs> you know, that's not the, sh- that's not the story. Um, that's not this book. And, but it might um, be another book. It might be another book, but it's not this one. <laughs> and, um and I had to feel okay with that. So then I was like, okay, well, it was so funny because there was, a, and I think I don't know about other writers, but you know, now this is my fourth book. So a I'm not panicked when you're in an existential moment in the middle of writing a book, like, why did I sign up for this? And you're like, why am I doing this to myself? Um, And then you need to work through it, and then you come up with this idea, and you're like, oh my gosh! So you go through moments of like brilliance, and is this crazy or is this yeah? So it came to me last summer, and then that reformulated the book, and then the idea of the other thing that was the idea of the interviewing my former students and having their stories be you know really part of it in the way that it was wasn't the initial proposal either. I it was part of it, but it wasn't the overarching, the way it ended up. Um, and I thought that there are stories, you know, that what was great is for me, it was like a culmination of going back and, and meeting with them. But it also gave me just such hope because these were such different, these are such different people. And I've been so fortunate to work with such amazing young people that are also different. Um, and their stories are different and their perspectives are different and their interests are different. And what I hope readers come away with is this idea that, you know, there's so many different pathways um, and there's no good, bad. There's just different. When
0: you're writing about real people like this, do you, are you writing about specific individuals and if, or are you doing conglomerations and if it's specific mm-hmm. individuals, how much sort of Do you let them read the section on them ahead of time or
1: how do you handle that? Well, I changed all the identifying details. So nearly all, there's a couple that are composites because the story, but it's in the spirit of the story. Mm -hmm. The quotes in the book are all from our interviews. So the quotes that they've said are from the interviews that we did, but I changed like identifying details. I changed their name and what I did was um, I went back and I, you know, because legal goes through it with a publisher. And I said, um, so I walked them through what I wrote about and were they okay with that? And they were. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I didn't share details that they didn't know that I was sharing, but they also were doing these interviews on the, on the, you know, we were recording. Um, but so the they knew going was, into
0: it that you were going to be writing about them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I contacted, I would say. Out of, you know, 95% of the people that I contacted got back to me and um, wanted to do it. And they they feel, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I feel like they're really excited that this could help people. Oh, and absolutely. Because they remember what it was like to be a teenager and they remember what it's like to be an adult. So that's what the ones that have talked to me about it since um, have said, you know, I'm really, you know, I think this is really going to help people. And that's just really wonderful. They're wonderful I mean that's the thing. You visit them 15 years later, and it's like one of them said, and I put it in the book. He's like, it's just like I'm in your front office, and we're talking again. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like no time has passed. So it was very, it was very rewarding for me. And um, you know, you go through parts of your career, and you're like, everyone, no matter how much they love their job, and I love my work. Um, you say, oh, you know, what is this? You know, is this meaningful? And I, you know, if I ever needed a reminder, this was just the universe telling me that absolutely well congratulations
0: and we're out of time but i do want to close with a quote which we always try and do on writer's Mm -hmm. voices and this is from ralph boston being the first to cross the finish line makes you a winner in only one phase of life it's what you do after you cross the line that really counts wow I love that. Yeah, that works for this book, I think, for your book. Totally. (laughs) So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.